Well, for those of you here that are here for the first time, my name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have a privilege this morning and a joy. Uh, I won't be sharing this morning, but a dear friend of mine will. Uh, I'm going to introduce in a second. Mr. Hans Oynes has been my closest friend I've ever known in my life. When we, uh, Sarah and I, moved to South Africa in 2008, you as a church actually kind of sent us out and adopted us at that point. We went to South Africa, and a couple months later, the Oynes family joined us there, and we have done life together ever since. We worked together leading a Bible school together. We did our master's degree together. We uh, led the, the ministry there as, as uh, kind of elders together over the ministry there in South Africa, hundreds of missionaries. We then started our own Bible school together and, and co-led that. We have been at the hip for the last 12, 15 years, and there's no person that has had, a, no human being that's had a greater influence on my life over the last couple decades than, than my buddy Hans. Um, you'll, you'll notice that we are definitely a little bit different. Uh, Hans, you can come up here. Uh, Hans is the runt of his family. They have Nephilim blood, and uh, he is by far smaller and, and, and shorter than the rest, um, but uh, a Viking man who has grown up in Alaska and has lived his life for the sake of others. Uh, I don't know of anyone in my life that I've seen exemplify the life of Christ more than Hans. And so they're come to visit. I say, hey, man, can you just share with our body today and just bring across the heart of Jesus? Because it's something that he just exemplifies. We're also different. You'll see me come up with a giant iPad and and a manuscript of notes, whereas you'll see Hans comes with either toilet paper scribbles on it, or in this case, I think it's an envelope from a Christmas card with a few things scribbled on it. Um, so I, I, I assumed it would be a napkin, but instead it's the back of an envelope. Uh, so you'll see we have slightly different styles, and he might use about a third of the words per minute than I do. Um, and so uh, the Lord has used us together across the world in many different countries and the places we've ministered and traveled together. And it was a joy to be able to invite him to be able to share with us this morning on the heart of Jesus. So I want to pray for my brother. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for the privilege that we have together to um, experience your presence, to honor you, to glorify you, and to receive from you. And so right now, Lord, I pray, may you move in each of our lives. Holy Spirit, may you speak through the words that Hans is about to bring. And that, God, may you uh, just guide this time into a place of receiving from you what it is you want to speak and speaking hope into our lives for those who are hurting. I know that there are so many here today that are struggling with hopelessness. So many here this morning who are wrestling with deep pains and longings and sicknesses and surgeries and loss of children and children who have walked astray, Lord. And Father, today, may you bring your words of life and hope um, through your vessel this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is a privilege and a joy to be with you. Um, I have had the I have had the honor of serving alongside uh, James for years. And it is amazing how differing gifts, differing tribes, differing tongues, differing personalities, differing characteristics have a way of shaping us and growing us and maturing us. And it's in those differences that we, that we can revel and we can anticipate even further in the kingdom. John is writing, actually, from that place of revelation, of seeing distinctive gifts actually sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. And uh, that's one of the things you'll note in John's writing. There is profound growth to be had in the bride as the bride continues. I was chatting at the, in between the services with someone who'd served in the PNG for like 30 years. John? Was it John? I'm forgetting his name now. Thanks, Hans. Well done. One of you. <laughs> serving, serving, but present in the 
first service anyway, talking about his service uh, across, across the world and bearing witness to the beauty of God's creativity. John is doing the same thing. He's witnessed the beauty of who Christ is. John has witnessed not only the beauty of who Christ is, he has been transformed by the beauty of who Christ is. And we're going to be reading some of those words recorded by him of others' stories. John, the son of thunder, became so other-oriented that he closed one of his works, not with his own story, but the story of, story of Simon Peter. And we'll be reading from that. If we could open up our Bibles to John chapter 21. We will be reading verses 1 through 14. I invite you to tune your imagination. So I like to say, listen with your nose. Yeah? Listen with your nose. Listen with your eyes. Listen with your mouth as we read God's story, the revelation of who he is, according to John, together. In verse 1, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, and this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples, Simon Peter, he said, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing at all. Fishermen go fishing all night, catching nothing at all. I'm curious if there are any fishermen here. I know there's at least one. I met him right up here. Any other fishermen in the house? Okay, praise baby Jesus. We got a couple. Well, I'm off. All right, we'll keep reading. Remember, they caught nothing after all, after fishing in a boat. All night. Anyway, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. But the disciples couldn't see who it was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No. No, they replied. Now, depending on your imagination and your ability to understand fishermen, you can imagine no with a slightly different tone, can't you? No. No! No! There's a couple ways you could say no. I would imagine fishermen. How would you say no? No. No. That's a good no. No. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, the other side. And you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple, 
Jesus' love said to Peter, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. Recognize that the, dudes who, the, dudes who, the dude who had the idea abandoned, straight up. Disappeared right when the work was getting tough. Anyway, when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish, cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew. They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead. Let's tune our hearts to prayer for just a moment. Christ before us. Christ behind us. Christ beside us and Christ beneath us. Christ above us and Christ among us. Please reveal yourself. Amen. I want to submit to you that one of the things John is doing, specifically in this story, but also in the whole of his writing, is orienting his audience to the reality of Christ's person. God incarnate, revealed in flesh, the Creator. Just before our reading, John says this. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of Of his name. You could say this is John's purpose in writing this specific story. This way of communicating the reality of who Christ is. He's likely a mature man at this point in his ministry. He served for decades, likely longer than any other living apostle. Probably, 
Every other apostle had already been martyred at the point of him writing this work. John is writing to his audience in order to provoke their imagination and to convince them that Christ, the Savior of the world, the creator of the world, the creator of the world, had become man, lived among them, and beautifully demonstrated belief and life. These are some of the key terms that you'll find in this book. John's imagination has been captivated by the life of Jesus Christ. And he is convinced that his his audience at the turn of the century, probably into the 80s, the 90s potentially, has lost their vision that the creator of the world had been made flesh, had become man. So you'll see in John's writings these little details of nuance in Christ's story you won't find in the other Gospels. It's probable that he is provoking his audience on purpose because they've forgotten the significance of Christ's humanity. His divinity within the Christian community assumed. His humanity actively being forgotten. So in his work, he is compiling story on purpose to bring remembrance to the beauty of who Christ is as man. This story is no different. This story intertwines human detail in a way that actually is designed to awaken us to the reality, the history of this story as a lived reality, not only by him as the author, but also those participants with Christ's with Christ in what is being recorded. I grew up in a little fishing town just a little bit north of here, a place called Sitka, Alaska. And I grew up knowing a whole lot of fishermen. I am not a fisherman, though I have fished successfully, I might add. (laughs) But where I'm from, that's like a cultural title. It's only earned. And if if you somehow are dependent upon that as a lifestyle, as provision, subsistence, it's called, then you can claim the title of being a fisherman according to my little subculture of Alaska. Well, having grown up in Alaska among fishermen, oh, by the way, my brother is a fisherman. So I will be making fun of him (laughs) consistently throughout the rest of these next few minutes. And he actually lives here in Seattle, so I doubt he'll watch this, though. So we're safe. I grew up with the assumption that somehow Jesus was more interested in spectacular moments than ordinary moments. I grew up with the assumption that somehow it was only in the 
highest of heights and deepest of depths where the presence of Christ would be, would be found or met. As I've continued to walk with Jesus for a few more days now, as I've become a husband, as I've had the privilege of becoming a father, I'm becoming increasingly aware that the beauty of who Christ is is available far more in the ordinary than I had ever imagined possible. Christ delights in our ordinary. Christ delights in our actual lived lives. Christ is present to us in our ordinary lives and his life, his hope, his joy, his strength, and his courage is available to us in our ordinary lives. I'm being rewired from assuming that the spectacular is the place where I can access his strength. And I am slowly coming around to the reality that Christ is available to me in the here and in the now. And that will be the trajectory of this reflection this morning. The title, if you are interested, will be... From familiar to too familiar. Reorienting our hope to the person of Christ. So from familiar to familiar. Reorienting our hope in Christ. What I'd like to do now is go back to our text. And I want us to employ our God-given imagination. Is that okay? God delights in our humanity to the point where he actually became human. Yeah. So our, our imagination is not a byproduct of the fall. Let me submit that to you. So as we read through this, I want you to engage not only your mind in the sense of rationale. I want you to engage the reality of this as an experience that not only John and James lived, but Peter himself, yeah, who is kind of the featured character in this story. It's one of the central features. John's the author, but he's closing his work with his friend and Christ's interaction. We'll be emphasizing the first half of this closing movement. Remember that Simon Peter has a history. Simon Peter is a fisherman. Simon Peter is one whom, having grown up fishing, likely knew the task of mending net, of cleaning fish. The sights, the sounds, the smells of that reality were embedded within his person embedded within his imagination, embedded within his family culture, his religious traditions, as well as just the day-to-day reality of his life. His father, 
potentially his father's father, right? This is generationally how things would have functioned in his day. Comes to a point where he is deciding that fishing is his way of finding comfort, finding familiarity, rooting himself in his own history. I'm going fishing. That's his statement as John records it. The six others, two of whom, at least of which are fishermen, James and John, say, we're coming too. We're coming too. Remember, James and John would have been actually fishermen as well, and it's most probable, given other texts within the New Testament, that this boat belongs to them. It's probable, in fact, that these nets belonged to them, or at least their family. Not only is Peter initiating a reference point within his own story for finding comfort and familiarity in the absence of their Messiah, he is reorienting himself to his craft, his vocation, as are a number of others. So as he initiates into this space of vocation that many of them would have been familiar with and were known, there's resonance. There's community. They are together moving into this space. Now I know, I know fishermen. I know a lot of fishermen. And I want you to imagine how comfortable you feel in even anticipating the joy of going fishing. Yeah? How many of you know fishing is not actually catching? Yeah? If, I, if we had that experience, I've, I've shared plenty of those experiences. In fact, my younger brother can be next to me on a boat and I will catch nothing and he will catch much, much. Yeah? Somehow, somehow that bestowed title actually matters. Well, these guys head out and they caught nothing at all. Nothing at all. How many of you have caught nothing at all? How many of you have caught nothing at all in the sense of actually not only just for the sake of fun and sport, but also for provision for your family? Do we, do we imagine together that this is a joy-filled nothing? Can you imagine being out on the water for hours and hours overnight? How many of you have done that? I've done that plenty. The rock of the boat it just becomes a part of your bones. And I won't get into the imagination personally, but I invite you to. There is a lived reality in these men together failing to catch fish. Joy. Hope, peace. Guys, this is the fruits of the Spirit, totally embodied. <laughs> Gentleness, kindness, patience, self-control. Like these guys are living it, right? This is what fishermen do on the heels of failure, right? This is what we do. I'm sliding myself into that seat. I don't belong there, but, I, but you know. I... No, they've failed. They've caught nothing. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. Dawn, so it's, it's not completely light. It's becoming light. 
The disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied with all joy and delight and hope and anticipation, just strength embodied, right? Courage. No, no, these guys are probably a little bit ticked, yeah? Probably a little bit like the no shit, what are we doing? We were going to have fun. We failed. Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. Do we know fishermen? Some landlubber <laughs> tossing out advice to the fishermen on the water. Brilliant move, by the way. Brilliant cultural awareness and contextualization, right? This, the, the, Jesus has got it. He's telling fishermen how to fish from the land. Brilliant. Anyway, here's the miracle, though. They do it. They do it. They do it. These guys actually do it. That's nuts, especially if you know fishermen. They actually do it before they knew it was Jesus. They haul in the net. There's so many fish, they can't pull it aboard. I'm, I didn't actually read it, I should have, but there we go. The disciple Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he'd stripped for work, which I don't know, I don't get, I don't understand that, it's easier to swim, you're more hydrodynamic naked than you are with clothes on, you all know that. But they, he puts on his clothes, dives in, abandoning this initiative that he led, right? Lamo. The others stay in the boat, pull the loaded net to shore, and there they were, 100 yards from shore. When they got, they found breakfast waiting for him. Fish, cooking over a charcoal fire, some bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught. Now just consider the reality of this for a moment. Consider the reality that Simon Peter had been a fisherman. Simon Peter had given himself to this vocation, and he had learned what success was from a, at a familial level, at a cultural level, at a provisional level, not only for himself but for his family. What do you think he would be experiencing in the context of catching 153 fish? What do you think? Can you guys put yourself there? Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish. Sure, yeah. You guys know fishermen, right? Remember, large fish? I think it's probably true. It made it into scripture. But hey, you can't always trust fishermen claims the size of fish. I'm just saying. And this is John recording it like 50 years later, right? So he might have had some fabrication going on. I, I, but I think it's true. I think there were actually 153 large fish. Simon Peter drags it in. He actually picks up where he is abandoned. He, he redeems himself. He redeems himself. 
He drags it back in, even though he skipped out on the whole rowing part. He does drag it in. But 153 fish. Imagine the reality that the entire crew had had when they'd been fishing all night, right? We're talking pretty deep depths, right? Frustration, lame oh lame, failure, 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 to 153 fish. That's so heavy, the anticipation was that the net would be ripped. These guys knew knew the tension strength of nets. They'd been working on them for a long time. They were probably the kids who'd repaired this net. That's joy. That is delight. And not just at an individual level of like catching a huge salmon, right? Or or of herring. No, they caught like they caught like fish, right? That, that's actual joy. And we are wired for that as humans. These guys had moved from depths into heights. And Peter would have been delighted, along with James and John and every other man on that boat. Absolutely delighted, right? Can you imagine? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? That's their experience. But as soon as, John, as, soon as Peter, sorry... As soon as Peter hears from the beloved that Jesus is on the shore, his delight, which would have been at a mountaintop experience within his person, at a wiring level, he would have been, we got fish, 153 off the charts, right? His delight at seeing Christ, recognizing Christ on the shore was even higher, was even deeper. His joy that he'd experienced in the catching of fish actually exploded off the charts and he moved into unreasonable action. He couldn't even contain himself. Throws on his clothes, swims to shore. That's the lived reality of Christ being made known to Peter. My question for us to consider is along the tracks that we've laid for ourselves, either at a familial level or at a vocational level or at a cultural level, is what are we, what are we wired for joy in? What are we wired for hope towards? What are we wired for our lived experience to, to bring us to that place of joy, vocationally, familially, culturally? What are we wired towards to experience joy? Peter experienced it. Peter experienced it. It was a lived experience for him, but in the recognition of Christ's presence to his ordinary success in fishing, he abandoned his fish and went to Christ. Didn't just went, didn't just go. Churned through cold water, clothed, to experience the proximity to Christ's person. Guys, this is the privilege we have of every Sunday, coming together in a community like this and orienting our hearts to the person of Christ who is real, and with us.
Christ truly is our joy. Christ truly is our peace. Christ truly is our hope. As we consider the familiar, just the familiar reality of Peter's lived experience and this story that John records for our benefit, but as a testimony to the beauty of who Christ is, I'm curious if our way of being is as oriented to the presence of Christ as Peter became. The invitation I would want to submit to you, the question I want you to consider for a moment, is are your hopes and are your joys as anchored in the presence and the person of Christ as Peter's is demonstrated to be in this story? We've got our tracks. We've got our ordinaries. We've got our equivalent to the fishing boat and the fishing net. We've got our desks and our monitors and our keyboards. We've got our hammers, our tool belts. We've got our guitars. We've got our kitchen sink. We've got our washer and dryer. We've got our kitchen tables. We're wired for those things. Our vocational expressions are gift, gifts from God for us to steward. Do we recognize that Christ can be present to us within our ordinary? Or are we wired to assume, like I him and have been, that Christ only meets us in the spectacular moments. One of the most transformative things within my life personally is recognizing that Christ is actually the center of my joy. Christ is actually the center of my peace. Christ is actually the center of my own joy. He's the center of my hope, and he is becoming that more and more and more. And he is becoming that through the recognition of his presence in my ordinary, not exclusively or only in my spectacular. Could we put up the prayer? What I want to invite us to do is employ our imaginations. Again, one more time. Just like John uh, was fishing, Peter, James, fishing on the boat, experiencing the lived reality of that, the disappointment, the heights, the depths, the joy, the sorrow, the, the whole spectrum. I want us to imagine for a minute our, our normal our ordinary, our fishing boat and our nets. Is it the sink? Is it the washer? Is it the dryer? Is it the desk with a monitor and a keyboard? Is it, is it a steering wheel as you commute from here to there? Whatever that is, I want you to pause for just a second and put yourself there. 
what is your vocational norm? Go there. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the experience. Now I want to offer you an orienting prayer. Something you can do with your words, with your imagination, in that space, that lived space. This prayer has become for me very precious. It's become sacred, and it has become a way of orienting my heart, my mind, my will, my emotions to the presence of Christ. Yeah? Paul talks all about our state in Christ. So this is simply a prayer, I believe Celtic in origin, that orients us to the reality of Christ's presence with us. I'm going to say it one time, and then I want you to say it together with me. Are we game for that? Can we do it just one time together? So I'll say it one time so you can hear it, you can see it, when I, be, when I opened this, I used it corporately. I said us instead of me. But I want you to imagine yourself at your desk or your chair or at the sink or at the laundry saying this prayer as a way of just simply acknowledging the reality of Christ with you. So I'll say it once, then we'll repeat it together. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ beside me and Christ beneath me, Christ above me, and Christ with me. Reveal yourself. I invite you to say it all together. Again, orienting yourself to your normal. Just like fishing would have been Peter's normal. Rocking in the boat, the sights, the sounds, the smells. And all of a sudden, not only the delight of success, but the delight of Christ's presence. Visible, tangible, real. Let's say it together. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ beside me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ with me, reveal yourself. Jesus, would you be our living hope? Continue to find us in our familiar. Amen. Thank you for listening. Jesus, we thank you that you are here. Oh, I love that story, Lord, of when, when the disciples were at a loss. You had appeared and they were confused. You died, you rose again, and you appeared and they didn't know what was going on. You walked away. They didn't know if they'd see you again. They didn't know what was going on. And around the boat, they're alone, they're isolated, they're afraid. They're angry, they're frustrated. And you meet them in that place. And you revealed yourself to them, Lord, right? In that place of confusion and chaos. 
as their brain is spinning in so many directions they can't even function. They're just in a coping mechanism of trying to stay busy so they don't have to think about all the, the thoughts and the crazy thoughts that are running through their heads, Lord. And there's hopelessness that's just flying in and hitting them from every angle. And in the midst of that, you presence yourself right in their midst, Lord Jesus. And Father, I know that right now in this room, right here, right now, there are so many that are feeling that chaos, that hopelessness, that place of wondering, where are you, Lord? They've got promises, maybe they've experienced you before, maybe points of where they've connected. But right now, they're in that place of, of pain and, and feeling isolated and distant from you, Jesus. So right now, Lord, I just say, presence yourself in our midst. For those who are hurting, I've got so many texts, even just this morning, of people who are hurting. We're wondering, Lord, where are you in the midst of this right now, Lord? So, Jesus, for those right now that are in a dry and weary place, Holy Spirit, come and meet them right here and right now, because you are with us. You are more present today than you were a hundred yards offshore to the disciples. You say it is better in John 14 that that your spirit goes away so that you could be with us, so that you leave us, that your spirit can be present to us here and now. And right now you are present to us right here and right now, closer than you were 100 yards offshore physically. So Jesus, meet us in this place for those who are hurting, for those who are dry, those who are weary, those who are angry, those who are facing upcoming medical diagnoses or ones that have already been there, those whose children are far away from you or running away, those who are struggling financially wondering how are we going to make it through, those who have been in a job search that hasn't come through, Father, in the midst of the, the agony and the angst, Father, meet us here. Margaret, could you put that prayer back up? Can we pray this again together? As we do this, would you just raise your hands to the Lord? Just raise them up. I said, Jesus, I I need you here right now. Father, we need you. We know that you are here. Sometimes it just feels as though you're that faraway blimp, even though we know that we are within you. We know you are here, but it just sometimes, sometimes, Lord, it just, it feels so far away. Lord, meet us this morning. With our hands raised, let's, let's pray this prayer to God. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ beside me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me, Christ within me, reveal yourself. Yes, Jesus. May we not forget your nearness. Whether we can physically touch you or not, you are here. So right now, let's just take a minute, and I just, with your hand raised to the Lord, just pray to him. Maybe you're at that place at the end of your rope, you're like, Lord, I need you, and just pray that out to the Lord. Maybe you're doing great, in which case, just a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. Maybe you're far away from the Lord right now and you're walking in pain and and anger and been running away and now is that place saying, Lord, if you're real, I need you. Now let's just pray out to the Lord with your hands raised. Just pray out. Thank you, Jesus.
Jesus, thank you that you are here. For any that are, are, are wrestling this morning and are just in a place of angst, please come forward as we finish for a prime prayer. We would love to pray with you, Hans, or myself, or anyone else up here. We'd love to pray with you for that place, just saying, God, I'm just so dry. I'm so weary. I, I just feel like I've been thrown and tossed in the waves and I got nothing left. We would love to pray with you before you leave here. If you're in a place where you don't know the Lord this morning and you've been kind of drawing near to him, now is a chance to say, Father, I'm tired of doing it on my own and I need you this morning. Come forward. We would love to pray with you and talk to you. All right. Jesus, thank you. What a gift it is to be your children. Amen, amen, and amen. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Thank you for joining us. Please, on your way out, grab some of those Easter cards that are on the seats. Give them out to friends to welcome them to come join us on Easter Sunday or on on Good Friday if if they'd like to. We're so grateful you could be here. Next week, we'll jump back into Ephesians, and uh, we have Easter coming up in two weeks. We're so stoked about that. So please, we'll see you guys next week. And linger, hang out, chat, talk to someone. Hans, as expected, is a lot shorter preacher than me, so you got plenty of time. Amen. All right.